I want to send the message that whatever happens in your life, no matter how hard it is, no matter what you have to do to get through it, no matter how many lies you have to tell, that you don't have to be defined by one single experience in your life and that everything really in the end is workoutable. Welcome to Atomic Moms, a weekly parenting podcast about the joys and complexities of caring for our little ones and ourselves. I'm Ellie Noss, and I celebrate and commiserate with best-selling authors, parenting experts, and caregivers all over the world in order to share their unique stories and advice in the universal experience of raising a child. Find us on social media, hashtag Atomic Moms on your social media. Okay, let's get to it. Okay, everybody. Um, I'm finally back from Michigan. Uh, I'm in LA. It's feeling good. Um, I drove for the first time in three weeks yesterday. It was terrifying. (laughs) If anyone ever has a chance to not drive for a month, I highly recommend it. Just go disappear. Get off the grid. Try it out. Today, we're going back to 1979. Okay, so it's 1979, and Liz Pryor is 17 years old, growing up in Winneka, Illinois, which she describes as a Norman Rockwell painting on the edge of Lake Michigan. She plans to finish her last semester of high school and head off to college, and instead she's completely shocked to discover she's pregnant. Her highly educated, very sophisticated, and recently divorced parents agree that this is a secret that must be buried for life. Our guest today was that girl, and in some ways, she probably still is that girl. Her brand new Random House memoir titled, Look at You Now, My Journey from Shame to Strength, recounts the five months she spent in a government-run facility for pregnant girls. Unlike Liz's refined upbringing, her new friends come from foster care or the streets. They have nothing. Some don't even know how to read. And she forges deep friendships with them as they prepare to give birth. The only people who know of Liz's pregnancy are her boyfriend and her parents. Everyone else thinks she's sick in the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. She hasn't publicly acknowledged this truth until now and with this memoir. So, everybody, um, today we're talking family secrets. We're talking about keeping up appearances and deep-rooted shame. And we're talking about Liz's pregnancy and letting go and rebuilding a new family once it's time. One of these days, I promise you guys, I'll just do a podcast about, like, which is the best baby sunscreen. (laughs) But today's not the day. And uh, thank God our guest is extremely funny. So in 2011, she became Good Morning America's advice guru. And she's also the author of What Did I Do Wrong? An advice book on female friendship. She's the mother of three... And I'll be right back with Liz Pryor. Miss Liz Pryor, welcome to Atomic Moms. Thank you. Um, when I opened the door, and I actually had already seen, obviously, photos of you, but I could not get over how much you look like my best friend from elementary school, Molly Johnson. <laughs> it, like, blows my mind. Really? It's like, it's so crazy to me. What do they call that? A doppelganger? Yeah, you're her doppelganger. Like, it's <laughs> shocking. Anyone in Houston who knows Molly Johnson, like, you got to check it out with Liz Pryor. Like, you guys are sisters. <laughs> I love it. Um, so I already feel like I know you, even though I don't. Yes. <laughs> so this could get intimate quickly. No worries. Okay. First, I want to ask you, could you please share with our listeners how you came up with the title of your memoir, Look at You Now? 
Sure. Actually, the title was A Real Difficulty. It was the last, I mean, I was really worried it would be a no title. Um, when about, when my mother got sick, my mother passed away four years ago. And before she got sick, really sick, we were sitting in a room. Um, we had not discussed this since I had the child and gave it away, um, for years. I mean, maybe four or five times. So I brought it up and I said, mom, um, I am thinking since I'm a writer that maybe one day I might write this story in a book. What do you think about that? And she said, well, look at you now, sweetheart. She said, she said, you do what you want, sweetheart. Look at you now. So I don't know. It just ended up, look at you now is the title of the book. And uh, she's a very profound and significant character in the story. So that's Miss how we Dorothy. came up with it. <laughs> it was Dorothy. Dorothy. Uh, yeah, what was her voice like? Because you talk about how she would yeah, You know, I did of, the audio of the book. Okay. We're going um, so to – I'm going to ask Random House if we can share that, oh, that yeah, there's a was, chapter that you have online available for mm-hmm, people. I'm wondering if mm-hmm. I can upload it. I'm going to try and make it happen. Yeah, she's a very – we describe it as sort of mid-Atlantic. I mean, my brothers and sisters and I would describe it as as British. She would be talking just like I'm talking, then out of nowhere she'd go, excuse me, could you tell me which way is the the vicinity of the facility? And we'd be like, Mom, what are you doing? Why are you talking like yeah. that? Putting on airs. Yeah. It's kind of like the like Grace Kelly thing. It is like, the Grace Kelly thing. So I thing. grew up watching those films. So did I. And uh, as an actress, it was a real problem because <laughs> I would think – when I was younger, that acting meant putting on those voices. I get it. Uh, well, my mother was an actress. But really? I kind of, yes. She was a theater major at Northwestern. Right. But I kind of figured out that she sort of does it when she's uncomfortable, mm-hmm. which is interesting. It's a form of protection. Yeah, or something. Putting on a character. Yeah, so it was interesting to have to do her, like I, I'm the best at doing her voice in my family. Mm-hmm. And then to have to do it on the on the audio of the book, it was interesting. Yeah, I was to like, embody her. Exactly. Well, also beautiful to sort of bring her back alive, oh. you know? All of the girls at the facility plan to keep their babies. Right? When I arrive, yes. Um, regardless of whether they have the means to care for the child. And it seemed like most of the girls didn't have any means or any support. Well, a lot of them were um, on leave from juvie. So even if they were keeping their babies, they couldn't bring them with them. You were able to convince some of the girls to give up their babies for adoption. Yeah, in the beginning, that did not go over well. I mean, they were just absolutely dumbfounded that somebody wouldn't keep their baby. But from their perspective, you know, a little baby almost was like a doll. There was a 14-year-old in there and, you know, someone to love and someone to love them back. And it was this whole notion, you know, this whole dream illusion notion of, you know, a little adorable baby, but... Yeah, something um, to love me. Exactly. So in time, um, some of them, you know, listened to what my story was going to be and why I didn't feel that I was old enough or prepared to raise a child. And eventually a couple of them were influenced by my choice and ended up giving up their babies, which was the first time since the social worker had worked there in like two decades. Amazing. And when you arrive, your mother says to the counselor, and I'll read this from the book, that your mother said she has made a promise that she will not look, touch, or ask about anything other than the sex of the child. In the end, it will make it easier for her. Correct. So do you think that's true? 
Did it make it easier? Oh, I do think it's true, and especially me. Uh, What's not in the book is I was a baby monger. I was just one of those young girls who loved kids, loved them, to the point where she would say, this is ridiculous, Liz. There's more to life than children. you know. And she had seven kids in nine years. And so she was probably dead on right that had I held the child, it would have been more difficult. Why did you leave that out of the book? What? That you loved babies. Uh, you know, it just sort of came to me later. You know, yeah. there was this constant sort of small battle with my mom and I. She would sort of get mad at me. And I think her life was so burdened by so many right. children. Which, by the way, our listeners right now, like, just veered off the road. Seven children in nine years. Yes, I know, right? So, yeah, I think that was the right choice. I think, honestly, the choices that my mother made for me as a minor child at the time we're all in what she felt was my best interest. It really wasn't so much to protect her and everything. I really think she did what she thought was right for me. So that was obviously difficult. And at the time, I don't remember thinking, I wish that weren't so. Like, I wish I could see this baby and hold it. Had I, I probably would have asked her. But, it, it you know, the whole pregnancy, I was just determined that that's how this would roll. And, and most, I mean, so many mothers feel when they're pregnant, like they don't feel any connection towards exactly. the baby anyway. Yeah. I mean, I think it's something that a lot of mothers struggle with once their baby's actually born. Yes. They, they're wondering, why am I not feeling these warm, fuzzy feelings that I'm yeah. supposed to be feeling? There's a lot of that. And everybody goes through it differently. It just depends upon your state of mind beforehand also. Right. You know? Do, going back to the your girlfriends, um, they've sort of... it's. The book has sort of been described as an orange is the new black. Um, Cuckoo's Nest meets Girl Interrupted. These girls are so fantastic and um, so fun and spirited. And I was curious, have you heard from any of them since? No, the, 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 the steel door was definitely slammed on that life. I mean, literally. Like, people seem to continually ask me, did your family really not know this story? Like, you say that to people, but they seem, it seems so unbelievable that my sisters did not know the story till four months ago. But do you think part of it is also, well, that's insane. I should <laughs> react to that first before asking my question. But... Um, that's also part of the culture that yeah. you and I come from. Correct. Like we're really good at burying yeah, things. Yeah, and pushing really it to the side. We're really good at repressing. Um, there are a lot of family secrets. Things look really good on the outside, no matter what kind of drama is happening on the inside. It's all about not a lot of acknowledgement. A lot of like, let's get over it. Get over it. Yeah, move on. Move on. Well, I mean, you know, back to the girls, the... You know, I think the crux of the story is it's basically a coming-of-age transformation of a girl who sees life and the world one way. And due to this extenuating circumstance, you know, I basically go into this government-run facility for underprivileged kids. I didn't even really at that time realize that there were kids in the country who didn't have food or whose mothers didn't, didn't love them. I really didn't. We were very, very sheltered. I mean, in concept, I think I did, but not in right. reality. So, um, you know, I sort of walk into this facility terrified for my life, but literally... Yeah, which, by the way, is a lockdown facility. Yeah. These are, these are, these are juvie girls, baby, street girls, yeah. who, frankly, in retrospect, it seems amazing to me that they opened their hearts and embraced me. You know what I mean? Because but you, I feel like in the book we learned, like, you earned it. 
you know? Yeah, a little bit I like earned it. Your singing and like the, with the books and you're, you, there's a great part of the book where you guys have to go to school and you realize that the school is total bullshit and no one's learning anything. And so you say, well, let's get books from the library. Let's start, you know, um, changing things around here. Yeah, we're making it somewhat reasonable. And you give them your maternity genes. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, Yeah, there were a couple. I think, you know, at the end of the day, you realize that, you know, people are made up of hearts and souls, really. And at such a young age to be able to get beyond what you what you've been taught to get on or um, be able to see through the exterior of people because for my survival, um, I had to see these girls as real people, which my parents never seemed to accept during the time that I was there. Yeah, there's a heartbreaking moment where you want to take them out to brunch with you when your dad comes to visit. Yes. And he doesn't let them come with you. Right. Uh, and that's that's a hard thing, and I feel like a lot of people experience that. A lot of teenagers experience that anyway, yeah. whether it's the you've got a boyfriend that your parents don't approve of. Sure. Um there are a lot of instances where the parent doesn't get that these are your your people now. Right. I think those are the moments in life when, particularly for the young people, when you realize that, you know, you're a separate entity from your parents and that it's time to start building who you are. You know, it's okay to try and embrace and accept and surrender the limitations of the people you love. That's really what this book is about because we're all limited. And... You know, obviously, almost 40 years later, I can say that there's no question. This experience, those girls, um, everything that I learned about my parents, my family, and the other side of the world came to help define who I am today, particularly as a mother, maybe. How did your relationship with your parents affect raising your own children? Because Anatomic Moms were always talking about, you know, you... (laughs) There's no way that your childhood isn't going to affect the way you raise your children. You can say, I'm going to do it a different way, um, but no matter what, you're influenced by it, whether you're reacting to it or encouraging it. Well, the hope is that, listen, you know, our childhoods are, are filled with, you know, an entire pie of experience. And honestly, most of my childhood was insanely fantastic. Seven kids, big house, great advantages, lots of love, not too much entitlement because there were so many of us. We were exposed to so much travel. And, and you know, my father, I describe him in the book as a very patriarchal dude who, like, before we came onto the planet, you know, knew and wanted us to be confident, secure, able people. And so much of what I got from my dad and from my mother Um, play into the parent that I am today. So this one experience, I don't really feel it in the parenting of my children. Mm -hmm. I think I definitely use, it's all about moral barometer. Like, well, I have seven brothers and sisters. We're all over the country. And basically, we parent identically. We all have very similar lines in the sands. We all have an expectation of our kids the way our parents did in that big global way. Now, the beauty of raising my children in Los Angeles in comparison to where I grew up You know, I have a lot to say about that because I think that my children are so much more exposed to diversification and socioeconomics, and I think they're much broader people 
at early ages. And for that, I'm grateful. So that really isn't my parents. That was really the community mm-hmm. and the culture. Um, but I like to say and remind people that whatever you can grab from your childhood and the rearing of it, you will, you will organically bring on to your children. And then the beauty is that you can add stuff that your parents mm-hmm. didn't do or that you didn't. But for the most part, it's good stuff. We don't walk around saying, well, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. We do that when we're young. But mm-hmm. when you actually have a child, you know, it's, it's natural to you. There were, you know, certain... I'm still trying to emulate some of the things that both my parents have brought to so my life. Dorothy was really big on traditions. Do yes, you, very. Do, do and you, so are all the girls in my family. Really? Yes. What's big? What's one huge. big tradition? That well, you Christmas guys have? is huge. Um, you know, I'm a guitar player, so I forced my little kids to sing, and you know, I taught them all to play guitar, and I actually have a musician as a result. I mean, I music in the house was big when we were kids. And is huge for us. We have a piano. We have a guitar. No matter where we live, I got divorced. We scaled down. Doesn't matter. Music is there. That's something I really gained from my mother, I think. And then, of course, Christmas and Easter and the 4th of July. It's just, you know, excuses to be together as a family. And my kids love it. You know, we can say I'm carrying carrying down the generations, Mm -hmm. you know. We go to um, Connecticut. My father grew up in a little island in Connecticut. And our, the seven of us go every summer for long periods of time. And my ex-husband and I bought a house there. And there's a picture of me when I'm one um, in the 4th of July parade. My brothers are dressed up as Abe Lincoln and we're riding our mm-hmm. bikes. And my kids did that same bike parade, you know, every summer. So This is crazy. Because, yeah. by the way, like we are so similar. We're, we're soul sisters. We're soul sisters because, I mentioned earlier, I just got back from a month in Michigan mm-hmm. because my family has a cottage in northern Michigan that we've had since 1904. There you go. Um, I've been there every summer of my life. My mom's been there every summer of her life, except for a few. Um, And my husband's family also has a cottage. So we were just cottage hopping. Oh, wow. Is his in Michigan? Yes. And his is also, um, he grew up outside of Detroit. But um, his family cottage is from like 1897. And so, yes, to see the same sunsets. That same place. This place never changes. It's it's really crazy. Watched exactly to, to swim in the same lake, uh, to have my daughter splashing around in the same lake. Like yeah. it's kind of creepy, but like where my grandfather's ashes are spread. There's something that's really um, grounding. So grounding about it, especially because I I grew up. Um, my parents got divorced when I was really young, and uh, I, I grew up in a bunch of different houses. Like we we're always moving. And so that is the one constant. Yeah, that's cool. And uh, we share that in common. We're both also, we might make people sick right now. <laughs> We're both uh, daughters of the American Revolution. Correct. Which is crazy. It's, um, it's interesting when, you, you know, we, we also have uh, both of our fathers uh, remarried to like very chic. Beautiful young people. Very chic, younger women mm-hmm. who are fabulous at creating care packages Is for your dad us. still married to that person? Yes. Mine's not. Really? Yeah, he's married. He married a third, and then he's on his fourth. And this is his fourth wife, and I think they've been married like 18 years. Wow. Yeah, so the wife in the book, who yeah. everybody loves, is no longer in our family. Do you have any contact I with don't, her? I don't, and I wonder if she will surface. I think she could because this Do character— Do you want her to surface? It would be interesting. You know, see, I have a heart like so. My mom is not married. My poor mother is like, why do you talk about me on this podcast? <laughs> um, her okay, so she's been married. She's married for a third time. Um, and my first stepfather, I was raised with um, from fifth grade 
until college. And that's a tricky relationship. Yeah, because she's not with him. No. So what's your deal with him? My deal with him is I love him, but it's tricky because my mom, you know, like it's It's like I'm like the little censor, censor, censor on the podcast. But I, it's weird because it goes into this idea that if your parent does not like this other person that you were supposed to love for years, and you say in the book about your parents' divorce, um, you write. What I felt like was that I couldn't love my dad when I was around my mom, and I couldn't love my mom when I was around my dad. It's a fairly common divorce kid thing to say, I think. Yeah. The loyalty. Yeah. It's so It hard. messes with you. It totally messes with you. Totally. And I always felt like if I am made of these two people, then that means part of me is disliked or hated by my parent or my father would say oh you're just like your mother exactly that thing yeah I mean you know I think honestly divorce is an extraordinarily selfish animal because Mm. you know I like to say to everybody you know no matter what the circumstances are you got to love your kids more than you can't stand your ex because it has to prevail I live it and it's such a personal challenge but you know, the moments that you could be in front of your kid, no matter how old the kid is, and have a conversation with your ex and know that you're right and that he's an idiot. But if you can maintain, you just have to look at your kid. And, and, and I know this because my parents were divorced. So I'm actually fairly okay at being divorced because I've got to put my children, and my children are, you know, adult, you know, 17, 19, and 21, and I'm really still dealing with it. So I have to stop myself from my selfish need to be right or call some, call him out and look at my kid. We're having a conversation. Let's save an argument for later. And, you know, eventually you use that muscle more and more and you start to feel pretty good about yourself because your kid isn't suffering the mm-hmm. way that it would have to. Mm-hmm. You know, so that that's tricky. You know, the thing with your stepfather, your one that was raised you, that's also a little bit similar in, in divorce when, like the divorced spouse was close with like my nieces and nephews, mm-hmm. you know, then the nieces and nephews are like, is he still our uncle? I know. I and I'm like, no, about- he's not. No, right. no, but it's so crazy. It's so true. They disappear. Like exactly. I've said, happened to me so many times with my It's an interesting and topic because it, it just depends. And, you know, I mean, in my situation, it kind of was pretty obvious. I haven't had any contact with my ex-husband's family. But that was, no, and that was pretty, pretty obvious that that would happen, even along the way in the marriage. And then less obvious with my, um, like, nieces and nephews, and I have a lot of them, like 28. Yeah, with seven kids. So, (laughs) you know, again, you kind of have to put yourself second and think, well, you know, if it's good for the nieces and nephews. So in my situation, it kind of worked out. It was pretty clear because it was a bit contentious. But in other people's situations, it's really uncomfortable, like... Like families being invited to graduations and yeah. somebody who's been married for 20 years to somebody. Oh God, I had they... like eight grandparents or 12 grandparents See? or something. It's, it's, and a step grandparent. It's uncomfortable. You're dealing, you're like... No pressure to stay married, but it's very uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> totally. And actually, so I was reading the, the moment in your book where, man, you, you fess up to your mother that you're pregnant and you're in your dad's swanky apartment. new mm-hmm. apartment in the city with his hot new wife. Um, and you have to tell your mother. and, and the, you He guys, tells her. Oh, he tells her. Yeah. That's right. 
She's and then, pregnant. And then it's the blame game starts. Oh, yeah. And when I was reading that moment, I got so nervous. And I was like, oh, my God, I've been wondering why I have these tendencies to people, please, and get into that stuff. And I was like, I've always been like, well, what is that and why is that? And when I read that moment, I was like, oh, my God. That's why. That's why. Because if I ever got in trouble, I, I didn't want to get in trouble because I didn't want to invite the shitstorm that would happen. Exactly. And that was a shitstorm. Because your parents, you don't want to give them ammunition against each other. No. And I also, frankly, like never wanted them to team up. So if I ever got a call and it was like a three-way call, I knew I was in so much trouble. Oh, that's interesting. I never got a three-way call. That was the only three-way conversation I think I ever had with my divorced parents. Wow. Yeah, which must have been interesting for my siblings to read because they didn't know that's how my mom met the new wife or that that conversation was ever had. Interesting about the people-pleasing thing because I don't think I have that. <laughs> yeah. I don't know lucky, why. man. <laughs> See, yeah, and I don't think a lot of people don't. I think people react in different ways, right? Or yes, we just have different exactly. temperaments. Yeah, that's true. I just avoid. Mm. Um, yeah, that was a tough, a really tough scene to write because it was so hard to sort of go back on it and, and see how difficult it was for my mother and then understand things from my dad's point of view. But but frankly, in that scene, it's, you know, what am I, a ping pong ball? You know, because it was flying back and forth and I was just watching it and very difficult. And the, the second wife was actually, you know, sweet, mm-hmm. you know, and really sort of respectful of my mother, as respectful as she could be. But it, that was a tough scene. When I read it in the audio, I was like, whoa. I'm so curious of how the, the your ex-stepmom. Like I know, they, I'm curious. You, you never reached out to her? No, no. I mean, none of us ever. They weren't married that long. They okay. were married like seven or eight years. Got it. And um, no, none of us ever. I don't think so. I mean, maybe one of my sisters had heard from her, but no, there's there's been no keep up. So as you mentioned, you have three children today. Yes. And that your son is 17, the same age you were when you had this yes. experience. I imagine that, you know, witnessing how immature your own son probably is, that it would make you even more compassionate towards your younger self and what you went through. Yes. But what's that like, living with someone that... It's amazing. Know, I remember, you know, actually this, my particular, my youngest child is... You know, he's going to be a senator. So he reminds me nothing of myself at this age. He's like, hi, LA, nice to meet you. You know, he's that kid. Yeah. And really mature and really smart and really responsible. I remember when my daughter, my oldest child, turned 16. It was just freaky to me to imagine that that was me. Mm-hmm. When I got pregnant, I was 16. Um, you know, it's, it's Connor, my oldest, sort of gave me the practice. You know, I told her the story first, and she, when did you tell her the story? I told her when she fell in love. Oh, you know, when man. I knew that um, we need to have a whole podcast about sex education with your kids and stuff. It it's so interesting to me. But I had a very long talk with her early, like when she was about fourteen, and she's a competitive tennis player. She's the captain of the Tufts tennis uh-huh. team. She's a very, very yeah. unlike her mother. I mean. You know, I'll pay her to get a B. She's a very overachieving. Yeah, but I feel like you are in your own way. I, you know, Let's people say that, it. but Come no, on. you no, don't really no, know me. No, that no. is not Come me. On. That is that has bullshit. got to be her dad. <laughs> Well, but, no, I'm no. serious. Well, no, maybe later. No, I was a lazy, 
just, you know, just like vagabond for a long time. After well, first college. of all, I feel like you're also comparing yourself to like the generals and captains that were in your family. That's true. So I'm just saying you're like, <laughs> your I mean, metrics made- a little higher. <laughs> and by the way, I also want to talk to you. One of my favorite topics is sort of people's second acts or the like yeah. after motherhood and the idea or once you become book. a mother, what, how you can reinvent yourself. Oh, yeah, which I did. Every- which I love. It's, yeah. That's one of the reasons I was so excited to have you on because I want moms to know that like a lot of moms freak out when they have their kid and they're like, oh my God, I hate the career I've got or mm-hmm. I'm leaving it. How am I ever going to do anything ever again? Because now I'm just a mom, not – I'm not saying that. I'm yeah, saying careful my, there, Allie. Critic, no, you the know, critical voice in your head might say, sure. I'm just a mom. How could I ever – um, express myself in other ways again. And you have like created a career post mommy. I have, yeah. And I think, you know, honestly, there was a bit of a gun to the head for that because well, I was- will do that too. Yeah, I was a stay home. Yeah. You know, take care of my kids. Divorce mom. did it to my Divorce mom. Divorce did it to me. And, you know, not a whole lot of people are motivated enough to, if they don't have to, but, you know, I had to keep my kids in private schools. I have, I have to pay for college. Yeah. And- um, and by the way, any listener out there who's wondering like about that comment about private schools, like you got to remember we're in LA and yeah. it's just a different beast. Yeah. And they had all started there. So we mm, sort of were getting divorced when they, so I moved, of course I moved too, but, but anyway, I was going to say, I told my daughter at 14 and, um, I didn't tell her this story. I told her about sex and, okay. and, and told her that when it was time that, that, that the only thing I ask of her is that she come to me and. You know, so we were sort of open about it. My mom goes, it's a, because I told her my first kiss, and she goes, it's a slippery slope. Slippery slope from there. And it was. <laughs> right. But when she fell in love at like 17, I remember her coming into the kitchen. It's just a gross mom moment. And, you know, I was busy. And <laughs> she's like, mom. And I'm like, yeah. And she's like, you remember a long time ago when you had that conversation? I'm like, what conversation? And she goes, you know, the one where you wanted me to come to you and it would be time to go to the doctor. I was like, literally, I was like, ah, and, and, and so it was post that that I told her this story. Are your children curious about where their you know, half-sibling is? You know, it must be in my delivery because I am so positively ingrained and seared that when I gave that baby up, there's a scene in the book where I chose faith over fear. And had to believe that, like my cousins, this baby would be loved and happy. And truthfully, I must have really ingrained this in, even in my own children. Mm-hmm. You know, it was my choice to give this baby up. Although catapulted by my parents, I feel like like wildly strong about the fact that I not go upheave this person's life because I'm 50 and would like to see maybe, you know, what their life is like. I, I find it, I don't know why, I... I feel so strongly about it feeling selfish to me. But it's crazy that you wrote a book. Right. But listen, so I protected this, this yeah. person in the book. Okay. I changed the state. I changed all of the people's names. And I looked up, and in this country, there are seven facilities per state. If I wanted to find this child, I could do it in 45 minutes. And if that child wanted to find me, that could be done very easily. I was a public figure on Good Morning America. (laughs) And, you know, that child has my name. That child has a letter for me. So so here's the deal for me. And everybody has their own. Does the child have your last name? Yes. Whoa. So, you know, that child is 40. And um, 38, 39? Almost 40. My husband, yeah. 
Okay. Yeah. So, so here's how I really feel about it. I think the people around me are slightly myopically obsessed with me reuniting with this child. So here's what yeah, I want to say about, about that. about What is that? Wait, well, real fast. I'll, I want to hear what you have to say, but I'm curious really quick because I want to know, why do you think people are obsessed with like the matchmaking or sort of the reconnection? You know, that's the American culture. Um, if I wanted to find this kid, I certainly would not have done it by writing this book. I wouldn't have protected this kid the way I have in this book. This book is about coming-of-age transformation and secrets and judgment and shame and strength and finding yourself in yourself. This is not a book. If I wanted to find this child, I would find this child. I'm waiting. My children are open. I did not present to my children, you have a half-sibling. I presented as the first time I had sex, I didn't use protection. I got pregnant. I was a child, and I gave that beautiful baby to a lovely couple that couldn't have a child. So they didn't look at it like, do we have a, you know, so 40% of the responders are myopically obsessed with the matchmaking. And and it's why I get so um, aggressive. I have to get aggressive. And because people are like, why? Why would you not want to? It's not that I don't want to. I want to respect this kid. Yeah. Because that kid had no choice over what I did. So that was my choice. This is their choice. And we'll see what happens. I highly doubt it. I think it would have happened. That's just me. You write in an essay for Red Book Magazine. I'll quote you here. It has taken years, but the feelings of shame and guilt have been replaced with a sense of honor and even pride. That the baby I never saw or held let someone else in the world have the treasured opportunity to become a mother is the most precious, unexpected gift. Can you talk to us a little bit about how you came to this realization? Because I imagine there's at least one mother out there who has experienced this and may not have been able to get there, come to terms with it yet. You know, uh, it was obviously terribly helpful for me to have a child and hold her in my arms. Your own child. My own child. A child I could hold and see. It was truly in the first year of having my baby that I realized, oh, my God. Like, you can think you know what it's like to love something, but until you have a child, it's different than any love I've ever felt in my life. And I realized that some wonderful woman got to hold my little baby and feel most of what I was feeling. And so began. And then I had my next baby and my next baby. I don't know why I didn't feel a sense of loss and then I felt a sense of gift. Um, I can't explain why that would be. It could be my obnoxiously positive outlook on things. Um, But I also do have three cousins who I'm pretty close to and my best friend who's adopted all of whom have such wonderful, loving lives and whose parents are so grateful to have them. And I have heard in from thousands of people, the book's been out 10 days, and so many adoptees and adopted mothers and birth mothers have reached out. It's interesting, that whole section of Mm -hmm. the book that seems to be resonating for people. You know, listen, what, how you decide to live in your head is your choice. I know people say, no, it's not, but it is. So you have to start to wrap yourself around which direction you want to sit in. And you are the one in charge of placing yourself there. So I suppose 
and I've, I've, I've reached, I haven't, I don't think I'm, you know, in denial about the baby. I don't think I'm in denial about my parents. Um, that's truly who I am. And that's the way life is sometimes. And shockingly, it works out most of the time for people, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Was it cathartic writing? You know, it's funny. I not yet. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I imagine you're stirring the pot a little bit. Oh yeah, and then you got to bring up your parents. Or you're trying to figure out what they were thinking and why they did, chose to do what they did. I feel like you did a really good job. Yeah, of- no, that part was not at all. That was like I never questioned that. That's yeah. our culture. That's what we come from. I don't have any questions about it. Yeah, I feel, and I feel you know there were times when your mother was supposed to visit and she couldn't, and that was also because. She was working with real and estate. And had other kids. And had other kids. So it's mm-hmm. all justified and it all makes it makes sense. It's still hurtful and hard. Yeah, I think I think it's one of the reasons they, they bought the book, maybe, is that it isn't a typical story because maybe a lot of people would be angry or resentful or whatever. But the truth is I wasn't angry at the parents then and I'm not angry now. And and you know, just recently, just in the last few days, I'm starting to feel something that I, I hadn't felt yet. Of course, writing the book, writing a story for the first time is 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 an amazing experience because somehow or some way it, it really is feels preserved inside of your heart in ember because the more we tell stories, you know how they sort of morph mm-hmm. and the visual mm-hmm. of them. Well, I had never, ever, ever told the story incomplete. So it was beautiful and cool and sad and occasionally, you know, lonely. And then it didn't feel, I didn't really feel a catharsis until the outpouring of love and compassion that has come in from the North Shore and, you know, where I grew up and all the people here who know me. I mean, the good news is that the world and people are really good. You know, it's a few of the haters that can throw us off. That would be a big lesson I've learned. You got to just turn your head from the ugly because most people are really pretty great. You talk about uh, untold secrets that people have. What advice do you have for the mother out there who is holding an untold secret? You know, look, I, I, I could have gone the rest of my life without telling this story. I'm sorry, but I worked it out and I figured it out. And and the positive part of that, so if there is somebody out there with any version of any untold story, I think the beauty is that it is a lonely thing to carry something so deep, so significant. But it's also the creator of these muscles inside of you that force you to deal with you in ways that other people don't have. I do think it gave me an inner strength that exuded in so many other places in my life. So this telling of it is just sort of the cherry on the top. It's honestly, it depends upon who you are and what the secret is. I could not perpetuate the behavior to my own children. And even had I just told them and not written a book, but I want my children and and people and then beyond my children. But my children are the only people I'm allowed to preach to. Um, (laughs) I want to send the message that Whatever happens in your life, no matter how hard it is, no matter what you have to do to get through it, no matter how many lies you have to tell, that you don't have to be defined by one single experience in your life and that everything really in the end is workoutable. I want my kids to imagine that whatever mistakes or choices they make that lead to things 
that can be something they bring to me and that they can ultimately stand behind in the world as a human being. This story made me who I am today and I want to stand behind it. I want to own it and I didn't have to own it. So it just depends if you're okay with, if you come to grips with your story inside of yourself and it's given you the strength and in a weird way we owe it to the other people to hear it Mm -hmm. so that other people can come forward with whatever situation they have. I, I hate the elephant in the room and everybody has one and I get to go home in five days, a home to where I basically said goodbye to my roots and never looked back because I felt like the scarlet lettered shame girl. I get to go back and, and look the elephant in the eyes and, and, and now it's and, and remove it. Because you're going back to I'm Chicago. going back and I am speaking in my hometown. Not to the shame that they put on me, but to the shame that my family, myself, and my circumstances put on me. So the, there's no blame game here with the mm-hmm. shame. It's just there. And if you, if you have an opportunity, I mean, I'll get back to you to tell you how that part felt. But I'm just coming into that stuff. Sort of maybe the cathartic mm-hmm. end of it. And I'm old, so I think, whatever. You know, whatever you think, what the hell. You know what I mean? Like, I'm going to do this for me and my kids. So for two years, you were Good Morning America's advice guru. Correct. Um, beating out 15,000 applicants for the job. And so I thought now for a moment, we might get just a little <laughs> free advice from you. Sure. Um, the thing I hear from mothers time and time again is the word overwhelm. So what advice do you give to the mother who feels like she's spread too thin? Yeah, I have a lot of advice for that mother because I was that mother. Um, I did a speech in Texas where I talked about, um, I called it the, the gerbil in the, on the wheel. I was at a sing in elementary school for my kids. I had two kids with me and one kid was had a solo. And I didn't even know he could sing. And... Um, <laughs> We were so busy, and it was so busy, and I had to go to the grocery store, and I was in my notes, you know, making a... And my daughter turned to me and said, my God, Mom, wasn't he good? I didn't hear him. You missed it. I missed it. And I wasn't even talking. I was just... Okay. So that was my moment. By the way, that kid just beat out all the juniors and seniors at Notre Dame High School and played Danny in Greece. Mm -hmm. So I I really did miss it. I, I say this to that. This is a tough town. Life is hard. Life has changed since we were kids. you got to be really individually strong about who you want to be as a woman and a mother. And you got to really close your eyes to what you see going. I think we feel pressure when people are like, well, you know, we have ballet, and then we have soccer, and then we have this, you know, says the competitive tennis lady. Yep. But, yeah, right. But, <laughs> but that was really, my daughter. So that's how we're <laughs> able to talk, speak to this, because we've experienced it. Yeah. And we come from a long line of that, right? So. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I genuinely think it would behoove every mother in the country at this moment to sit down with her schedule by herself, and remove. If your daughter or son is 10 or under, remove two activities a week. Let's call it the Sharpie exercise. No, seriously. Let's do it, guys. Get a Sharpie and and black out. Well, Ellie, you know, I did that, and now she's on, you know, they're watching TV, and I'm talking on the phone. Good. You guys are together. You're in the house, and it's chill time. I think we've... Listen, you know, half the mothers out there are going to say I'm never doing that because, you know, they, some mothers 
because they're afraid it. that their kid won't end up playing tennis at Tufts or wherever. Exactly. Do you know what I'm saying? That's why they keep doing it because they feel like I've got to do this now so that my kid will be on the tennis team. Okay, let me if she'll let me miss speak out to on that. the tennis now. Let I, me look, speak to I that. I come from the world of like let your kid go Listen out and play in the backyard. Listen to your child. Okay, I have a kid who plays tennis at Tufts. She's my oldest. We were in the car. She was eight. So the boys were like six or seven and five. It was seven o'clock in the morning on a Saturday morning, and we were driving to some very fancy USTA clinic. I tell the story all the time. And she was tired as hell. And my middle son, who's my sort of brainy, bright guy, just looks at me in the rearview mirror and says, Mom, what are we doing? And why are we up so early? And why are we? Do- it's Saturday. And I like, you know, I had that moment and I pulled over and I was like, oh my God. And I look at my daughter. I'm like, Connor, we don't have to do this. Suddenly, because she was so good, I think I did mm-hmm. get caught up in it. And she said to me, she said to Augie, she turned around, the boys are sitting there, you know, in their jammies and their messed up hair. And she goes, I may look like I don't want to go. I may look like I'm tired. But when I get there, I'm going to love it, and I'm going to be so happy I'm there. And this is what you need to do to be good at tennis. She was eight. Augie says back to her, "Okay, really? And he goes, Mom, is that true? Is that what you have to do to be really good at something? And I said, I guess so. And he goes, okay, I don't really want to be good at anything. And the other one goes, (laughs) me neither. And it was like not even a joke. Yeah. And thus, I have three very different children. Augie's very good at different things, but... Listen to your kid. And if you have an overachieving, you know, DNA imprinted active kid, then, you know, nurture it. But if you think an iota of you is doing this for you or for the yeah. people around us, yeah. You know, if, if you don't cross off a couple things with a Sharpie, you're going to regret it. Let's you're going to regret week. it. Moms, let's do it this week. Seriously. Just like cut out one activity. Well, or also really sit down with yourself in, on your bed or in yeah. church and ask yourself why your kids are doing so many things. Is it because they would drive you crazy if they yes, weren't home? because you need activities. Because you're scared to slow down yourself, which I wrote an article about. Everyone needs to check it out on Huffington Post. I mean, I understand that you need to keep them busy and everybody does that. Nobody sits down and eats But we've dinner. lost summer. People have yeah. lost summer, and that's so lame. Well, you know, I got to tell you, I did it very differently from all my friends. And all my friends were very impressed with my children. I would say because they were happy and easeful. Hmm. You know, and so they would look on and be like, what is Liz doing? <laughs> that her children are communicating with one another and communicating with her and not throwing fits. And, you know, later somebody came to me and said, I got to tell you, I don't know how your kids get along so well. I'm, I'm so envious. I mean, it's, it's killing us at home. Of course, I said, well, you know, when I got divorced, the kids and I, you know, fought really hard, you know, I won custody. And so I just don't think we can afford to like be doing the I hate mm. you. And then she, so she looked at me and she goes, oh, you think I should get divorced? Yeah, then? right. <laughs> I was like, well, no, but... But I think, you know, you got to stop. You got to stop the wheel, the gerbil wheel, as often as you possibly can. You know, some people would, if you had callers, would call in and say, I like it that way. I like staying busy. And well, that's okay. That, that's, I, that's, that's fair. Okay. That's really fair. But I would say, what are you scared of? Well, what, what are you, are you running, running from? from? What do you not want to stop and see? Yeah. 
Well, and I don't think, you know, listen, I, I, I love moms. And I don't think it's a crime to not want to be alone for several hours every afternoon with your kids. Some of us are meant for it. Some of us are not. But if yeah. you think about those who can do it, it's because there's, there's order. There's, there's chaos order. In other words, you, you want to always feel in control of what is going on. If the kids get out of hand, you want to know what to do. And lots of moms don't feel that. Mm-hmm. You know, and they say, you know, I just love it when people say to me, my God, your kids are so well behaved. They're so nice to each other and you're so lucky. And they walk away and I go, yeah, they just came out that way. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't come out that way. Yeah. It takes a lot of work and a lot of effort and a lot of well, selflessness. You must have learned so much. Wait, what was the last word you said? Selflessness. Selflessness. Yeah. You must have learned so much growing up with six siblings too. Yeah. That would help in that department. Yeah, you know, I think with moms, it's a very specific game. You you have moms that inside of themselves, they they wonder if they should really be moms. Those are the moms I want to talk to and say, you should all be moms. Let's talk about, like, if my parenting book would have a hundred different faces of different women all over it because we're all that different. You know, my one way isn't the right way, but if certain things I do can help mothers, you know, see their way to doing it best for their most easeful life, great. You, you know what I mean? And some mothers, you know, really don't, you know, they've, I've had so many confessionals where, you know, I say, look, you don't have to feel bad about working. If you're a better mother three days a week and you can be at the top of your game, fine. There isn't one way to do all of this. It's the one way that you find works for you. We usually conclude our episode with a mom bomb, which is sort of an inspiring quote that I like to think it's like kind of a kick in the ass. <laughs> I like it. But um, this one comes from the last words in your acknowledgments in, in the memoir, and it's from Henry Stanley Haskins. The quote is, what lies behind us and what lies before us are tiny matters compared to what lies within us. So thank you so much. Thank for you. It was so nice moms. meeting you. Liz. Smart lady. <laughs> Listeners, please subscribe on iTunes.com backslash Atomic Moms if you enjoyed this episode. Uh, and a lot of heart and effort goes into these. So please consider leaving a review on iTunes and sharing links with your mom groups on Facebook. I'm going to put up all the information for Liz's books and also some of her other advice giving on social media so check it out and until next week trust in your goodness live out your greatness rock on atomic moms